So hello, all you wonderful reinventors. This is Leslie Jane Seymour. And what do you do when you have an art dream and you don't know if you can pursue it? And because your family was a family of lawyers, that was the only thing you were going to do. It just made sense. And that's what your dad wanted you to do. And your mom even went back to school later on in life and became a lawyer when you were six. And um, you like it, but you have a nagging bucket list thing. You're a musician in, in, your, in your side gig, and you really want to start taking that seriously. What the heck do you do? Well, I have somebody here, Shea Littlejohn, who decided she wasn't going to let that bucket list disappear. She was going to actually pursue it. And boy, did she do that. And it's a wonderful story about commuting from Boston to D.C. and then commuting to Nashville and then actually making her dream come true for a year and a half and then realizing that she actually didn't like the commercial part of music, but she wanted to find a balance somewhere. And so she did. And so now she lives in Nashville and she is married and she does both, which is wonderful. And it's a really good story about how to be practical about finding something that brings you some money that you can actually do and support your dream at the same time, but not let it slip by. So let me bring to you the wonderful Shea Littlejohn. So Shay, so glad to have you. I, this is such an, an interesting reinvention. I know that my listeners are going to love this. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be able to talk to you and your listeners. So let's talk a little bit about your history, where you grew up and how you grew up and how you started out as a lawyer. Just give us a short idea of what your original direction was. Okay, so I grew up in, in Dayton, Ohio, and sort of a kind of General Motors town where sort of everybody was either, seemed like everybody was a, a General Motors worker or a doctor, teacher, dentist. You know, there were very limited careers that I was aware of at the time. And my, my father was a lawyer, and, um, and then he encouraged my mother to go to law school when I was about six years old, I think. So she graduated from law school and became a lawyer, and it sort of became this family tradition where my father would encourage us that we always needed to know our rights. We always needed to be able to be independent, and, uh, and so he encouraged us to go to law school as well. And what did you like about it? You did go to law school and you got your degree, right? Yes, I did. I did. And I never considered not going. It was one of those kind of subtle brainwashings from an early age where my dad always told me that I, I, he planned for me to go to law school. So by the time I hit that age, it was as normal as going from high school to college or from eighth grade to high school. I never questioned whether I was going to go. And what did you like about the law? What kind of law did you do? Give us a little bit of insight into what you actually did. So I didn't make a conscious choice. I think that's part of my reinvention story. It's about becoming more conscious about your choices. So again, it was a sort of natural progression for me. And I never really stopped to think about what I was going to do as a lawyer and whether I really wanted to be a lawyer and what that meant. I mean, I saw it through my parents and their activity and their work, but I never really questioned it or analyzed it. So when I came out of law school, I was looking through 
the, you know, the jobs and I started submitting my resumes and I was given an offer by a major law firm. And the, my selection process for my career at that point was, it was the, one of the highest paying firms and it had a nice percentage of women at the firm. And that was my full analysis. I accepted the job and I went there. Well, that's unusual. I haven't heard anybody say there were a lot of women in law at all. So that's really, that's fairly unusual. No? Well, that's why I thought, well, this firm might be okay, right? Out of all of the ones that I was researching, this one had, I, it wasn't 50% female, but it was, it was approaching that. And I thought, well, maybe that wouldn't be such a bad place. But again, in my, in my mind at the time, I'm thinking, well, it, it pays a lot. So aren't I supposed to be going to law school and, and then come out and make as much money as possible? I hadn't really stopped to think about the other things that would be important besides money. And so how did you end up segueing over into music? Were you a musical kid? Did you take a thousand classes? How did you end up in this? So I was in church choirs for many years. Some of my closest friends came out of that scene. Uh, and then I did take piano when I was younger. Didn't really want to practice, but I loved music and I sang a lot. I had a little quartet of, you know, of vocalists where we would um, travel around town and, and sing at different events. So I always enjoyed, enjoyed that part of things. And I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to be a musician and be around music because it made me happy. And so I never considered it as a career though. Um, in my circle of people growing up, there, were, there was no such thing as making a living and being independent and being, uh, you know, in being a musician. I didn't realize that that would be a, a secure option. And even today, I don't know that I would call it a secure option, but my, my father's uh, framework and expectation was that he wanted to make me able to be secure. And so he never would have encouraged a music career. Of course, later in life, he thought, well, you have your law degree, go do what you want to do. It's great. So he was very supportive when I made that transition. But that transition didn't come until I had been practicing, I guess, at least about 12 or 13 years by the time I decided that I really felt like this was a nagging feeling, a bucket list item that I'd always wanted to do. So I had a, a kind of negative job experience where I just didn't like the person that I was reporting to at the time. And so I was going through this time where my mother had been ill. Of course, a lot of us make major life changes when we have illnesses in our family. My mother was diagnosed with a, a terminal brain cancer. And so at that point, through helping to care for her and talking to her, I figured, you know, this is a time. I, I can't just keep pretending as if life is always going to be uh, there. It's not just the black and white, alive or dead. There's, there's a whole slew of gray area in between. And as the years went on, I kind of realized that, that I didn't want to have regrets. And one of the regrets would have been not ever attempting to, to spend time with music. So after that sort of negative job experience, I, um, I said, I need a break. I need a vacation. I'm going to take a, um, let me look for an unconventional summer vacation. So I was Googling music and summer and all of a sudden Berkeley College of Music in Boston, its summer program came up. And I thought, wow, that, that would be sort of an unconventional summer vacation for an adult. And so I went. And when I was there, I, it was only there for a week. And I had the best time ever. So I came back, you know, fresh perspective, still wasn't enjoying my job. And then I was on one of those long girlfriend phone calls 
where you talk about everything you don't like about your job and where, what are you going to do with your life? And my friend at the time said, why don't you apply to go to Berkeley full time? I mean, you loved it when you were there over the summer. And while we're on the phone in that two hour call, I went ahead and filled out the application, wrote an essay, <laughs> did all that. And a, a couple weeks later, I was offered an audition. Uh, and I said, wow, okay, well, that I was surprised to even get admitted, you know. And so then I went to the audition, and then they offered me a seat in the program. So that's kind of how it all, you know, got, it just sort of happened naturally at that point. Um, and, and then I started a part-time law practice and started commuting back and forth between school in Boston and my law practice in D.C., uh, and then it, I, I could keep going from there. It's been, it's been quite a journey. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that it, it's something I am so glad that I did. It's um, when you have a bucket list item and something that really kind of runs deep in your, your, your thought process and you, something you can't seem to shake, I personally think you, you owe it to yourself to explore it. And so what was that like, though? I mean, did you, so you were doing part-time, so you were two-timing it, so you had enough money to not feel awful. But that must have been a lot of work to do both. I know I went back to get my master's while I was working full-time, and it's really hard. Yes, it was really hard. And I don't know, uh, I, I think that I may have, maybe I would have experienced more success in terms of the commercial success of music had I stopped and actually considered not doing that part-time back and forth. But, um, but I had responsibilities. I owned a home in Washington, D.C. Um, I knew the semester was going to be 16 weeks, and then there'd be the summer, and then there'd be another 16 weeks. So, it, it, and my parents were no longer paying for me to go to school. So the tuition at Berkeley is not inexpensive, as you can imagine. Uh, so there was those reasons. I was sort of continuing the work so that I could continue to pay the tuition and manage my responsibilities. And so tell me what your singing career or your music career looks like now. And what do you actually make of it? And does it bring you any income? Is it purely just an outlet? Do you, how do you, how do you work the two together? Yeah, so I ended up doing that commuting time um, from Boston to D.C. And then I decided, well, this is not working financially. Uh, and so I decided why I could just, instead of paying tuition, I could move to Nashville. And I could learn more on the ground in Nashville, which I had been doing. And then I started commuting for another two years back and forth between D.C. and Nashville. And then I got an apartment in Nashville and really started getting my, my hands wet in the music scene here. Um, that process has been a, a huge growth process. Number one, because you realize that you're doing something that you're back to being a beginner. And once I, at that point, by the time I moved to Nashville, I'd been practicing law for, say, 15 years. So I knew I was an, pretty darn good at that. But when it came to music, it was a totally new experience for me to, to actually write songs, to go into the recording studio and, and literally record with people who had been recording for some of the top major recording artists. And you almost feel as if you're the weakest link sometimes when you're the new person on the block. And a producer said to me, um, they were all gathered, and, and these folks had recorded for people like Reba McIntyre and Miranda Lambert and all those folks. And um, the producer said to me when I told him, you know, geez, you know, this is really intimidating. I feel like the weakest link. And he said, well, you're actually the reason why we're here. You're the one that wrote the songs that we're all recording now. 
So you're not the weakest link. And I think that's an important thing for your viewers to and your, your viewers and your listeners to hear because we oftentimes are self-conscious about something that's a second act when really there's no reason to be self-conscious about it. You know, we, we have our expertise, we put that in our pack, we in the back pocket, we identify with it and, and we feel good about it. And then when it, it's in, it makes us very hesitant and guarded about trying something new. And the truth is whatever you have in your mind that you're thinking about trying, there's a reason why you think that you might be good at it. Some other people have told you that you're good at it. And that would be why you would start even seriously considering making a change. So I think you have to always remember what you bring to the table and not discount it simply because you're new at it. Um, to answer your question about the, the music, yeah, to answer your question about, about how the career is going now, one of the things I had to be uh, honest about was that I didn't really like the pursuit of the commercial qualities of music. I wanted to write songs that I identified with, that I loved playing, and that I loved singing. And if those songs weren't necessarily the ones that were the commercial radio hits, because of course it has to be a commercial radio hit generally to be able to make a living at it, then you, you, you could try to force yourself into that. And I did for some time, but to tell you the truth, that took a little bit of the joy out of why I was doing it in the first place. So I realized that music as being an, a muse, an, the art of music and being an artist and being a commercially successful musician uh, are often not the same thing. Some, some lucky people are able to combine the two, but for the vast majority of musicians, there is no way to make a serious, you know, stable living and pursue uh, your creativity at the same time. So you're, you have to be really driven and, and market and do all those commercial things, even if you are an artist, in order to make it successful. And I realized I didn't have that, that interest. I didn't have the interest in making it professionally in music, more artistically. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what do you do then? Did you ever pursue the music solely and drop the law for a while? Or did you always have, did you switch it so that your law was your side gig? Or what did you do? Was it, was the law always supporting you? Is that kind of how you looked at it? No, it wasn't. So when I first moved to Nashville, so after I finished that commuting in DC, then I commuted from Nashville to DC a bit. And then I stopped doing that. And I, I've stopped working in law probably about a year and a half. Uh, because it was stressful to try to be in two places at once. And I actually didn't have a Tennessee law license yet. So, so I couldn't practice in Tennessee. So I did stop for about a year and a half. And then, um, and I was writing most days. I did a music tour where I toured to, I was in, uh, in the DC area back where I came from. It, I was in North Carolina, Florida. I did shows around Tennessee. So I was, I was in the touring lifestyle a bit. Um, I recorded three uh, EPs, what we call extended plays at four or five songs. Uh, and I was living the life of a songwriter and a performing songwriter for, for that year and a half. Over time though, when I started realizing that the part that I spoke about of the commercial element of it, that that's not something I wanted to pursue. I didn't want to take the little bit of money I had at that point and pay a publicist to market my music. I didn't want to only sing top 40 hit types of songs. And so when I started realizing that, I thought, you know, this is not going to be something that I'm going to make a living at. It's going to be something I do for the love of it. And so that's when I started 
working in law part-time again, but in Tennessee so that I didn't have to commute. Okay, so now do you, is it just your hobby or is it something that's evenly balanced with the amount of work that you do on it? And do you still do any touring or anything or it's completely now just art on the side? I don't do any touring anymore. Um, I, it's art on the side because I went back to uh, corporate life, right? So now I'm an, I'm an attorney at a publicly traded company. And what I found was through that process, when I started working part-time as a lawyer here in Tennessee, I one of the companies that I had as a client actually invited me to stay. So it wasn't a process of where I started putting out resumes. I was just doing what I loved on the side with the music. I was working a few days a week for this company. And then they said, hey, we really would like for you to stay. And it turns out that it became a good fit because the company that I work for is very entrepreneurial. It's not as, um, before I was in very institutional types of, of law offices. I was in the federal government. I was in the local government. I was at a major law firm. And all of those, think about the difference between working, say, in a banking or insurance industry versus working for a new tech company. The company that I work for now is much more uh, entrepreneurial focused, very growth and fast paced oriented. And so that was a lesson that I learned through all of this. You have to make sure that when you're, that you, you're true to what you want and you have to know what you want. And you have to know what environments work well for you and the environments that don't. So if you don't, if you're a people person, then you don't want to necessarily go work for a, you know, slow, dry, institutional environment. Uh, so I know that I would never work, return to a law firm, for example, or I know that I probably would shy away from the banking industry unless it was a fintech sort of company. So I, so that this process of growth for me has included being honest and open about who I am, my personality, and that I want to be able to do it all. I want to be able to do music and be creative, and I want to work in an office that's kind of jumping, that that has things going on, that's active. And so um, that's another sort of tip that I picked up along the way that I think would be useful to your listeners, that they that they should focus on really what they want and be more intentional. That brings me full circle back to what I said about being intentional earlier. My early, the first half of my career, I wasn't intentional at all. I just sort of took the job because it paid the most, because they had more women. I didn't, it wasn't because I knew what I wanted. That's interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of people find themselves in that situation because they're not really sure of what they want. So they end up down the road somewhere and it's not exactly what they were interested in. But I love the fact that you always knew this was a bucket list thing for you. And I love the fact that you took it so seriously because a lot of people would not let themselves take it so seriously. And the fact that you're still living in Nashville, what does that bring to you actually having moved there? Okay. So moving here, uh, one of the reasons why I stayed is because I, I met my husband here and, um, and at the time I met him, I was, it was one of those portions of time where I was not working as a lawyer. So I was a singer songwriter and I met him and we developed our relationship. And then I decided that was another reason why I said, I can't just keep going back and forth to DC. I'm missing out on so much being here. And that was a big change for my life because I didn't have children. I lived in Washington, DC, single, loving my life there, having friends. And actually most of my friends didn't have children. Most of them were single. So coming here, 
in meeting a man who has two sons and um, who now we, we, we got married last year. We all live in the same house full time together. So it's been an incredible journey. Uh, and that's why I think being open-minded, pursuing things like with the full gusto and, um, and being intentional about what you want. I wanted, I wanted happiness. I wanted more tenderness in my life than I felt like I had when I was in Washington. I wanted more um, clarity of what I was doing. I wanted more free time to be able to pursue, uh, write my music and record the music and spend time with my, my then, you know, significant other. So if, if you don't get, if you don't have what you want, you're the only person that can go get it. You can't wait for your employer to say, sure, I'll give you some free time. Sure, I'll let you, you know, have Saturdays off in order to go write your songs. You have to take it. You have to find the place that you can be that works for you and the lifestyle that you want to lead. And did you find any issues with being an older woman and not being 20 when you were doing this? You know, it's funny. I, I think it was funny that people didn't realize that I was older unless I told them. So, so I, and I wasn't broadcasting that at this point I was, when I first went to Berkeley, I was in my late thirties. When I did that summer program, a couple of the professors were trying to recruit me to attend full time because they didn't realize that I had already had a degree. I don't know why, maybe because I was around so many college students that I just kind of blended in. I certainly wasn't wearing my suit jackets and, you know, a full face of makeup and everything. I had my hair in a ponytail a lot. So I don't think people realized how much older I was than, than the, the kids in the school. And then in Nashville, I think they, they could tell I was a little older. But again, when you're in, it, it would make a I assumed it would make a difference. I assumed that if I, if I ever got to the point of having commercial success, that somebody would say, hey, but aren't you 40 now? <laughs> because clearly what they normally market are, are people who are in their teens and, and 20s. So, but, but I couldn't, but I, I got to this game when I got to this game. You know, it, you only have the awareness that you have at the stage in life that you come, you know, you come into it. And so I could look back with regret and say, you know, why didn't I try this earlier? But I didn't. And I tried it when I tried it. And I have to accept the circumstances that I'm in, the industry that I'm in, and not be in denial about it, but also not let it stop me. I mean, if you have a dream, sure, maybe you could have done it 10 years ago, but, but you know, maybe you didn't have the awareness 10 years ago. Maybe now is the time, regardless of all those other factors that might tell you no. So if somebody is listening and they are in some kind of profession that they feel is not exactly right for them and they want to be more of an artist and they want to take the art seriously, what are the things that you would say to them? How, what kind of planning do they need to have? What kind of do's and don'ts are there? And now that we are, you know, have just come through this or in the process of coming through this major pandemic, which is going to change the direction of many people's careers, what do you think is changing there? Well, I think that you have to make sure that you save money. You know, you have to be in a, a position, especially the older we get, the more responsibilities we tend to have. Uh, we have to be able to pay for health care. We have to, you know, we need to go to the gym. There's, there's things that are, that are a lifestyle, uh, that affect our lifestyle that we definitely have to take care of. And so I don't know any woman my age or older who wants to be broke. 
Now, that doesn't mean you have to drive the fanciest car or live in the most expensive home. Uh, to this day, I maintain a very modest lifestyle of the type of home I want to live in, the, the type of car I want to drive, because at any given time, if I decide that there's another bucket list item or a dream that I want to pursue, I don't want my mansion to keep me from doing it. So, so there's a give and take there. Um, I think as far as people that want to be an in, in artist, art takes marketing dollars. It's not about necessarily the talent. Of course, the talent is important, but it's sort of smoke and mirrors. You know, one, you would think, or you're led to think that because an artist is talented, it's just going to go viral. Everybody's going to know it. Everybody's going to see it. Living in Nashville, there are probably 10,000 songwriters that live within a 10-mile radius, radius of me. I know countless guitarists, countless drummers. And I think when you're in a community like this, you can see that talent is, you can throw a, a quarter and hit talent in every direction. The difference is luck, being in the right place at the right time, being willing to network, being willing to ask people for help, being willing to collaborate and not be an island and, you know, thinking that your talent's so great that you're going to somehow shine. <clears throat> and, and you have to pay money to market. You, you, you won't just get discovered. You have to, uh, and maybe you keep your job because you decide that I need to pay for a publicist. I mean, many people don't realize that you'll, you'll read a magazine article. I'm sure you do, Leslie, but, but many people don't realize that sometimes you'll read a magazine article of the top 10 new artists, you know, and their publicist that they pay a couple thousand dollars a month has gotten them that placement. And even once you have these huge artists, uh, when you realize the millions of dollars that have been put behind them, to get a number one song in country radio, it will cost you maybe a million dollars in just promotional and marketing in order to get that number one hit. And the wow. only thing that really I had no still, idea. That's incredible. Yeah. Unbelievable. It's, it's astronomical. And so the reason why you don't have very many artists in the music industry making it big is because they don't have a million dollars in marketing to, to get a radio hit. Right. And, and now of course, radio is, is, not as popular as it was, but you're still paying for Instagram and Facebook and all of these and YouTube and, and placement and paying for followers and all these things. So I think artists do themselves a disservice by thinking that it's all about their art when it's not. It's a product that has to be marketed. And once it's marketed, it has to be received. Wow. That's incredible. I really didn't know it was that deep and that difficult. I'm actually, sadly, mm -hmm. it's very sad to hear that. But yes, I know that, mm -hmm. you know, almost everything used to come in when I ran magazines through our mm -hmm. publicists, because that, you know, there was mm -hmm. just a sea of stuff. Otherwise, you just couldn't collect it and you couldn't tell what was good and what was bad. And, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry, I mean, you just don't have time. You'd spend your whole time responding to, you know, to a LinkedIn message, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And what I else? met with a couple of publicists. No, I met with a couple of publicists when I got to Nashville and, uh, and I thought maybe I should hire one that people keep telling me, you know, the produce, one of the producers I worked with used to be at Disney and he produced some huge acts and, um, and produced one of my records. And, and he said, you need a publicist. You got to have a publicist. So I meet with a couple and that one wanted, 
$3,000 a month, I think it was. And then she was willing to take $2,000 a month. And another one wanted $4,000 a month. And now some parents pay this for their children. But of course, at this point, I was not a child, nor even when I was a child, my parents never would have paid for that. But, but, but at this point, I'm an adult and I'm thinking, geez, I have to keep traveling to Washington, D.C. or working here in order to pay that. And then that's after tax money. And then I'm only working part time. So this is just not a good, good, you know, scenario. So, um, but, you know, record labels do pay three and $4,000 a month for an artist to have a publicist. So, um, yeah, I, it's not something I would have been willing to put money on. And I'll tell you, that's a low number compared to what I know from the media world, which is 10 to 12 mm. a month. Wow. Or any wow. kind of... I remember when Tom Cruise was at his height and he was before he blew himself up by being a crazy person, but he was with the um, top publicist um, in the country at the time. And when I asked her again, he was like, she was doing him for nothing because she, she knew that his name would draw other people to her. And she was charging him like $3,000 because she wanted uh, his name, yeah. And then she would charge the other people who would come in who were nobodies and wanted to be with the same person, you know, the nine, 10, whatever. So yeah, three sounds low, <laughs> but, yeah. in, but impossible yeah. for, for a small person, for a single person, impossible. But I well, understand that. Everybody, yeah, well, in Nashville, everybody's trying to make a living off of the music business. Well, not right. everybody, but, you know. Right. And so right. if you can get four artists or five artists to pay right. you two or three thousand yeah. dollars a month, you're sitting Got pretty. a business, right. Mm -hmm. Now, do you see any changes, because we're almost at the end here, but do you see any changes coming out of the post-COVID pandemic um, way that we're going to approach these kinds of reinventions into the arts or into music? Is there a different approach coming? Do you see the world changing in any way? Any thoughts on that? I, yeah, I, I think it goes back to making sure that if you are a dreamer and you have bucket list items, then those don't come free. And so to the extent that you can maintain some sort of you know, income while you're pursuing those things, I think it's, it's very important for peace of mind, for personal security, um, I think it's very important. There would have been a day, and there was a day when I did go cold turkey, you know, but I did save a little bit of money. And um, at one point I had a rental property. So that also helped generate a little bit of income. So, but I think you can keep, you can start thinking about ways to put in, um, you know, those kind of income opportunities in place, you know, um, and, and that's not easy to do, but you know, not everybody's going to go out and buy a rental property. But if you're, you have to realize that all of these bucket list items are going to um, subtract from your savings pretty rapidly, right? right? If, you, if you just stop earning money. So I would say in, this, in today's age and COVID-19, earn, earn the money while you have an opportunity and don't give it up until you're absolutely positive that something else is a go. Okay, that's going to make money for you financially. Can I ask what you did about healthcare in that year and a half? Were you on a COBRA kind of thing, or what did you do? So I had, I was a student, so I had Berkeley oh. healthcare. Ah, uh, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, because yeah, this yeah. is the big problem. It's like if you leave your big job, how are you going to get healthcare, mm -hmm. especially today? 
So, um, yeah, I mean, I would never go without healthcare. I was always brought up that you have to have it. And I wouldn't advise anyone. I, mean, I, I feel so bad for a lot of the artists here who have no healthcare, no, no savings and COVID-19, they're not playing any gigs either. So I have no Ugh. idea how a lot of them are getting by, but, um, but peace of mind is important. It's, it's a critical thing to happiness and you have to set that up first. Well, wonderful, Shea. Thank you so much for the time you spent with us today. I think there are a lot of people who are going to learn a lot about how to pursue something on their bucket list from you, which is fantastic. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Nice to meet you all. So thank you all for joining us at Reinvent Yourself with Leslie Jane Seymour. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Shea today, and I hope that you will not let any dream sit on your shelf and not pursue it. I hear way too many women who say to me, I feel like I passed up so many opportunities and I didn't live up to my potential. Don't let that happen. Listen to Shea, you can do both, figure it out. And that's what we want for all of you. So I hope you enjoyed this. If you did, please subscribe to the podcast and also come on over and visit us at coveyclub.com. And I hope you will join us there as well. We have great content. We have great events. We have virtual events. We have live events. When we get back to those, we have fantastic stories like this. And we have current events that we talk about also for women. So come and enjoy it. Um, if you like the podcast also, give us a quote, give us a review, or give us some stars and give us a comment. So thanks a lot and we'll see you next time. Bye.